The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. We're in a new series in the book of Philippians. Philippians is a short book, as you may know, it's only four chapters, but it's incredibly rich. And I like to start series like this by answering the why question. Why the book of Philippians? Originally, we had planned on doing a series on culture and how to, how to maintain, uh, how to stand on the truths of Christian faith in the midst of a changing culture. And we're still gonna do that. It'll probably be first quarter of next year. But um, as I was praying and the elders were praying and we were discussing and having conversations with you guys, uh, it occurred to me that um, there's not a person I've talked to lately who would say, you know, there's a lot of things I need in my life, but joy is not one of them. Like no one's crushing it on the joy meter. You know what I'm saying? And it makes sense, right? We've been through a lot in these last few years. We seem to be living in increasingly precarious and uncertain times. Uh, On top of that, um, culture right now, the culture outside these walls in in our country is marked by things like division and anger. I didn't get that. It's, I said anger, Siri. Um, and fear. And technology and fear and, and mistrust and suspicion and stress. We seem to have no grace for one another anymore. We seem to have no patience for one another anymore. We don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. And all, that's what we're experiencing the six days of the week out there, right? And if we're not careful, we bring all that junk with us inside the walls of the church. And the culture from out there starts to permeate the culture in here. We also seem to be a people who are anxious and hurried and rushing from one thing to the next, glued to devices, <laughs> right? Um, Marilyn Robinson, she's an author, essayist. Some of you might know her, uh, her book, Gilead is a great novel that she wrote. Um, In an essay she wrote recently, she said very prophetically, the spirit of the times is one of joyless urgency. Just hurried, busy, one thing to the next, no joy, right? And, And brothers and sisters, this is not the life that Jesus came to bring for us. This is not what he came to give to us. John 10 says, I came that they might have life and life abundant. And so why as believers are we settling for slightly Christianized frenetic dullness? We need the book of Philippians. We need to have the Lord give us a word for today about how to reclaim the joy that only he can provide for us as we navigate these uncertain and precarious times. And so that's why the book of Philippians is in the Bible. And I hope that it is Uh, an encouragement to you as we walk into this series. Now, I have three asks of you um, while we're walking through this series, okay? Number one is that you would commit as much as you are possible to being here in the room for this entire series. It'll take us about 12 weeks, okay? So whether you've been here years or whether this is your first time, I think that covers everyone. I would like to ask you to commit as much as you're possible. I know, well, we've got this thing out of town. We got the, I get it, okay? But often Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. 
And so I'm just gonna plead with you to decide every Saturday night we're going tomorrow, okay? Because we wanna hear from God and we wanna study the book of Philippians together. So that's ask number one. Ask number two, if you are not already in a regular rhythm of reading scripture, I'd like to ask you to read one chapter of the book of Philippians every day for this entire series, okay? That will get you through the entire book of Philippians 21 to 23 times, okay? And this is my money back guarantee to you, all right? <laughs> if you will commit yourself to reading God's word regularly and just read, read the stinking book of Philippians. It's only four chapters, right? One, two, three, four, boom, one, two, three, four. If you'll read that thing 20, 25 times over the next 12 weeks, I promise you it will do something in your soul. It'll change you in a profound way, a way that you can't even imagine in this moment if you'll commit yourself to reading the word of God. So that's second ask. Third ask is get into community. So many of you are already out there talking to group leaders, Bible study leaders, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, but if you didn't get a chance, uh, we'll, we'll have some opportunities for you to get plugged into community. You gotta have people that you're walking with. Right? You gotta have brothers and sisters that you're doing life with. You gotta have people. Now I know community groups are an artificial form of community, but it allows you the opportunity in an environment not filled with people, right? To get to know some folks and to, to understand who they are and, and, and to share your burdens with them and have them share their burdens with you. And so get into community if you can. Okay, good, good, all right. Acts, sorry, I'm gonna be in Acts in a minute, but Philippians chapter one, let me read these first 11 verses for us. And then I'll pray real quick and we'll, we'll dive into what God has for us here this morning. So if you can join me, it'll be on the screens as well, but I would love it if you had a copy of God's word in your hand, whether it's digital or analog. Uh, there are paperback Bibles in the seats. Um, we have two different kinds and that's why I can't give you a page number because I don't know which one it is. There's multiple different um, uh, page numbers in those Bibles under the chairs. Anyway, Philippians one, starting in verse one says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, the leaders of the church, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Have I yearned for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now here at Missio, when I read the word, I say, this is the word of God. And then the people respond, thanks be to God. So this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be joined together as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. We ask that you would do what only you can do, Lord by your spirit and through your word to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to transform us at a soul level that we might see the beauty, the glory of Jesus, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that we might cling to him with even more fervent faith than we had when we walked in the door. 
So Lord, would you fill me and use me this feeble attempt at rightly dividing your word? Would you use it to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think in the lives of these people for your glory alone and for our good? We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right. Um, So Paul begins this letter, as, as we just read here, by looking back. He's looking back with gratitude at all that God has done in the, in the church at Philippi. I mean, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. So clearly Paul has some history with these people. And we have to ask the question, well, what is it? What's the history that Paul has with the church at Philippi? If you're a note taker, I'll just tell you that the first point is looking back, okay? Um, Paul's given us here really kind of some keys to our joy and one of them is to, is to look back. He's looking back with gratitude. So what's the story here? Uh, you may know, many of you, that we, we spent a year going through the book of Acts. And if you'll remember, I think it was January of this past year, we hit Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16 is when Paul makes his way to Philippi for the first time and makes the first converts in Eastern Europe. Uh, you can throw that map up, guys. I thought we were done with maps, but here we are. So uh, this map is Paul's second missionary journey. If you remember, uh, Paul hated Jesus until he met Jesus and then he loved the resurrected Jesus and he began preaching the gospel and planting churches. And on his first missionary journey, journey, he went through that region, uh, you see Antioch and Tarsus and some of those places. And then on his second missionary journey, uh, he went back visiting some of those churches that he had planted before. He, put, he brought along, he split from Barnabas, brought along with him Silas and Timothy, some new travel companions for his ministry journeys. And uh, they were going through that region sort of mid-screen to the right, the Cilicia, Tarsus, Derby, those places. But Paul and his, and his, and his uh, traveling companions, they wanted to go into Galatia. They wanted to go into Asia Minor. They tried to go north and they tried to go west towards Ephesus. And at every step, the Lord by the spirit was closing the door for them. And so they really wandered for about 400 miles without direction. They tried to go here, door closed, try to go here, door closed, try to go there, door closed for them. And so they made their way to this place called Troas, which is sort of mid-screen up towards the top there, okay? Troas, this little uh, port city. While there, uh, Paul has a vision, a dream of a Macedonian man. Macedonia is that region to the north, northwest. And the Macedonian man said, hey, come over here and help us. And so it's funny in, in Acts chapter 16, it says, you know, after all these doors had been closed, Paul has this dream and Luke, as he's writing says, so we concluded that the spirit was leading us there. And I'm like, yeah, all the other doors are closed. This one opens. We concluded that this is what we should do. So they hop on a boat, they go to Philippi. Now, Philippi is a leading city. Um, it is home to a lot of retired Roman soldiers. Um, it's, it's got a lot of um, Roman nationalism, right? It was sort of a Rome away from Rome. They really valued uh, the laws and the customs of Rome there. And so Paul goes there and they're looking for a synagogue, but one does not exist because you have to have at least 10 godly Jewish men to start a synagogue. So in this leading city of Rome, there's not even 10 godly men. There is a place of prayer. And at the place of prayer down by the river, there's a bunch of women who are there praying. Now, remember, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come help us. And all he can find are some God-fearing women. And so he goes there, they start asking questions. And the first convert on the Eastern, in Eastern Europe is this woman, Lydia, who's actually from Asia. 
Um, she, she's from the town of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. She was uh, a wealthy woman and she's a God fearer. She, she knows something of the God of the Bible, but she's not a Christian. So he shares the gospel with her. She's baptized, she becomes a Christian. She opens her home and the church of Philippi actually starts to meet in Lydia's home. Next week, they're on their way back to the place of prayer. And here comes this little teenage slave girl who's oppressed by demonic spirits. She can tell the future somehow. And so she's following Paul around and what she's declaring over Paul is truth, right? He, he's a man of God, he's, but she's doing it like a carnival barker, right? And it's annoying the mess out of Paul to the point the text actually says he was greatly annoyed <laughs> by this girl. So at some point he turns around to her and he's like, demon come out of her and it does. Right? God in an instant rescues this girl from this demonic oppression. And all of a sudden this girl is freed. Second convert, okay? The problem is her owners now could not use her for money. And so they have Paul and Silas beaten and stripped naked and thrown in jail. So here we find Paul and Silas in jail. It's midnight, they're beaten naked, they're, they're, they're beaten up and sore and they're in this dirty, nasty jail cell and they're worshiping and they're praying, just like you would do if you were in jail, I'm sure. And all of a sudden there's an earthquake and the earthquake happens and uh, all the doors of the prison open up and all the chains of the prisoners fall off. The prison guard wakes up, he realizes, oh no, right? And he assumes all the prisoners have escaped. And so he's gonna kill himself because the punishment for him would have been death. And right as he's about to kill himself, Paul and Silas speak up and they go, no, 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 no. We're, still, we're all still here. And wouldn't you know it, this man of Macedonia falls to his knees and he says, how may I be saved? And Paul preaches the gospel to him. The man actually takes him back to his home. He fixes up Paul and Silas's wounds. They preach the gospel to his whole family and they are saved. And this is the core group of Paul's church plant in Philippi. You got a wealthy businesswoman, you got a little teenage orphan slave girl, uh, and then you got this ex-Roman soldier, you know, who was brutal to them and now is a believer. It's amazing, right? God uses anybody anywhere at any time. Now, fast forward about 10 to 12 years. Paul is now under house arrest in Rome. He's in jail. He's in Rome. He's facing trial. Remember, he appealed to Caesar. And uh, the church at Philippi has sent him a financial gift to help him offset his costs there because he's having to pay for his own room and board in Rome. So this letter, or this gift comes from this guy named Epaphroditus. We'll learn about him in chapter four. And so Paul writes a letter back to the church at Philippi. And as he's doing so, he's reflecting on all that God has done in and through the church of Philippi. And he's overwhelmed with joy and gratitude for these people in this church. And so he pens this letter. And that's why he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, praying every prayer for you with joy because verse five of your partnership in the gospel. Now, Partnership in the original language is the word koinonia in Greek, which is actually the word fellowship, can be translated fellowship. And, and most of us are gonna land somewhere on the spectrum between when you hear the word fellowship, you either think J.R. Tolkien or you think Baptist potlucks. Like it's one of the two, right? Somewhere on that spectrum is, is, are the rest of us. But the word fellowship does not just mean sort of Christianized niceness. Um, there's a scholar named D.A. Carson. 
uh, he writes a lot of commentaries and stuff. And, and on this word fellowship, specifically in Philippians, this is what D.A. Carson says of it. He says, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. There may be overtones of warmth and intimacy, but the heart of the matter is this shared vision of what is of transcendent importance, a vision that calls forth our commitment. Now, by the way, this is what our prayer is for us as Missio Dei Church. This is our prayer for the, the beautiful people of Ben Creek Church, that we might be, Lord willing, partners in the gospel. That, that, that Jesus would be very real to us in resurrection power. That we would know deep down in our souls that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. And that in Christ and by his spirit, we would learn to loosen our grip on, on ministries and programs and names and facilities and and that we would together even, even let go of our lives and be willing to invest ourselves in the kingdom of God. That the gospel advancing in our city for the good of others and the glory of God would be what is of most importance to us. So that when other people, the people who are not in this room right now, right? When they look back on their experience with this congregation, they will look back with joy and gratitude at the work of God in and through us. Amen? Amen. And by all accounts, the people of Philippi, the church of Philippians, were a vibrant and joyful and generous people. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, I'm just gonna read you a little bit. You don't have to turn there. Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthian church and he's gonna reference the churches of Macedonia. Primarily, he's speaking of the Philippian church and how they were joyful and generous. Listen to what he says. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, just think of that equation. Think of it like a math problem. Severe affliction plus abundance of joy plus extreme poverty, what does it equal? A wealth of generosity. That's the work of Jesus. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. No one had to pressure them to do so. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So this isn't just them writing a check because they got an extra 5K and they don't know where to spend it. Severe affliction, extreme poverty, right? Abundance of joy, overflowing generosity. They gave not only financially, they gave of themselves. They gave their very lives to see the gospel go forward. They were partners in the gospel. And that's what we pray that we become by the grace of God as partners in the gospel. So Paul is looking back at his experience with the Philippian church and he is filled with joy and gratitude for all that God has done through those people, but he's not finished. Look with me at verse six. You guys with me? Yes. Verse six, he says, 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. So my second point here, I'm just calling being present. Okay, so Paul's looking back and he finds joy and now he's encouraging the saints at Philippi to be present with one another. He's encouraging them, in other words, to, to live expectantly that God will be at work among them to be fully present with one another and open to the work of God in their lives and in their community. And, and by the way, God is always at work, always. I think part of the reason why so many of us lack joy at times is that when things turn difficult for us, when circumstances are hard, when we're struggling, um, we turn in on ourselves. Like our view gets so myopic and all we can see is our circumstance and the gray cloud that's sort of above our head and we can't get above the clouds and see what God is doing. I mean, he's always doing a million little things in other people's lives and we get so turned in on ourselves, we can't see it. Um, I heard a sermon probably 20 years ago and this one line really helped me. The pastor said, um, if your life stinks, why are you so focused on it? <laughs> Like, why are you looking at yourself all the time? Look around you and be encouraged by what God is doing. He's always doing a million things all around us that we can't see when we're so focused on ourselves. So rather than this sort of woe is me attitude, and I, listen, I don't mean to discount hard things that many of you are going through. You are going through some hard things, okay? But sometimes we're prone to a woe is me attitude. W-O-E, like woe is me, look at my hard circumstance, rather than a woe, W-O-A-H, is God attitude. Look at what he is doing. Yes, I'm struggling, but other people are, are seeing amazing blessings and isn't that great? Can we rejoice in that? Now, Paul is not usually given to this much affection. Um, if you've, a few years ago, we did the um, letter to the Galatians. And if you've read Galatians, he's basically like, dear Galatians, why are you horrible? You know, that's like the start of his letter. Why are you abandoning Jesus? That's kind of how he starts the letter out. So, but yet here he's sort of gushing and he says, it's right for me to feel this way. I mean, he even uses the word yearn in verse eight, how I yearn for you. Look, I'm gonna just be straight with you. I got a lot of friends in this room, but I'm never gonna text a friend and say, I yearn for you. Like, I don't even use that word with my wife. Like it's not... <laughs> It's weird, right? Oh, I yearn, but, but see what he's doing is he's saying, I have the affection of Jesus flowing through me to you. This community was, was particularly special to him. Now it, it might be because of the way it all started, right? Like uh, miracles, healing, prison, earthquake, all that stuff. It might be because he's now in a Roman jail cell and he knows he's, he's, his life and his ministry are in their winter season. But I think it has more to do with the fact that they have been present with him. He says here, partakers of, it's the same root word as the word fellowship, right? That they were partners with him in grace. Not only the grace of salvation, but the grace of prison. You see Paul 
counts it grace, not only when things are going well, but when things aren't going well. I rejoice in my sufferings, he says. So salvation, prison, the defense of the gospel, confirmation of the gospel, all those things were grace to him. And so he could look back and, and he, could, he could say, you know what? The church at Philippi, they've remembered me. They prayed for me. They've checked in on me. They sent financial gifts to help offset my cost. Like they have been with me in that. They are partners in the gospel, but more than that, they're partakers or partners in grace. That's amazing. And you know what? We have the same privilege today. When we think about the, the, the churches that have been planted from here, the churches that we help support. So we've got, you know, Zach Mason up in Spruce Pine, the Grove Church, as things are blowing and going for them and they're seeing people transformed and people healed, marriages restored, people meeting Jesus, baptisms, like that, we're partakers in that grace with them. And, and uh, Billy Glosson, Quorum Deo Church in Morganton, when, when those things are happening, when, um, uh, when Brody Medford plants uh, his church in Waynesville here in just a couple weeks, September 18th is their launch. And, and God uses that church to minister to those people in Waynesville. Like we get to partake in that. When we, our partnership with Compassion International in Tanzania, when those kids are getting rescued from poverty in the name of Jesus, we're partakers in that grace. When churches are being planted in Tanzania, we are partakers in that grace. And by the way, would you pray for Pastor Sylvester? He's the pastor of uh, Majengo Baptist Church there in Tanzania. Uh, he was just diagnosed with prostate cancer, I think uh, two weeks ago. So please be in prayer for him that God would bring him healing and restoration that his ministry might continue. But see, Paul was experiencing that for these people, they, they, were, they were living out Romans chapter 12, verse five, which says that we are one body and members of one another. We don't have to be in physical proximity with one another to be members of one another. They belonged to each other in such a way that when one of them rejoiced, they all rejoiced. When one of them suffered, they all suffered. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? That's the beauty of this Christian community that we are made for, that all those 59 one another's in the New Testament start to become reality. That we confess to one another, that we pray for one another, that we encourage one another, that we exhort one another. Not everyone, not everyone does that. I had a... Um, member of our church just yesterday emailed me a little excerpt of an article from Tim Keller where he talked about the commodification of the church, meaning that many people um, find a church not, not purely based on um, what God is up to or, or the people there, but, but on the product that they receive, maybe the music or the preaching or the kids ministry or whatever. And when any of those things starts to suffer, well, we move on and find another church. So we're, so we're not as invested in the relationships with the people as we are the product we're experiencing. It's the commodification of the church. And that has no place in the Bible. Now, here's the reality. We live in a very transient city. And anecdotally, I would say every three to four years, we probably replace 30% or more of the church, right? People are just, they come in for a season uh, and then they move away. Jobs, you know, many times it's like, we had a baby and now we can't afford to eat. So we're going to move back to Indiana. You know, it's like that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's true, right? And, and there are many times when we have to stand up here and we commission people back to wherever they came from or to other cities, it's really painful, right? Because we've seen God 
do miraculous things. We've seen people come to Christ, meet their spouse, have their kid, you know, wrestle with infertility, uh, you know, whatever. Like amazing things happen. And, and we've seen them grow as disciples. And then when we have to say goodbye to them, it's painful. It's really painful, right? To, to, to know you've invested that much in someone's life and God used you for that season and now they're moving on somewhere else. But then there's other times, if I'm, if I'm just blunt, where people leave and they don't miss us and we don't miss them. Except it, 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 every time it makes me sad that for them, it just didn't happen, right? Like they, just, they never had that experience of those one another's. They never had that genuine community that God desires for each one of us. And I pray that they find it somewhere else, but, it, but it's, it, it's painful, right? That they don't experience that. So, so Paul is saying here that joy is to be found if we are present and open to God and invested in one another. And so you, you can sort of ask yourself where you find yourself there. Are, are you present and open to God and are you invested in the lives of other people in this community? And then finally, let's look at verses nine and 11, nine through 11. Paul's gonna pray and he says, now it is, my prayer, I mean, this whole thing has been a prayer, but now he's, he's turning it back to prayer. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So my last point here is facing forward. So Paul's looked back, he's encouraged them to be present, and now he's facing forward. Paul is turning his attention to the future, to what he calls here the day of Christ. The end of all days, the, the, the last day when Christ returns and he makes all things new, but he also comes back to judge the living and the dead. And so his ask, Paul's ask of the Lord is that the Philippians' love would grow. He says that it would, that it would, grow, it would bound more and more. But it's not just love in a vacuum. He says, I pray that your love would abound with knowledge and discernment. It's really important. Because love can't exist in a vacuum. It, love is not just this sort of nebulous emotional pull that we have no control over. Love can't exist without knowledge. I, I, listen, you cannot love someone you do not know. I don't care what your favorite rom-com tells you. So love has to come with knowledge, but he says, I'm also praying that love comes with discernment. Discernment is that ability to sort of divide between things and determine which one is worthy of affection and love. And listen, not everything's worthy of our love and affection. Love, because listen, he, he says here at verse 10, why does your love need to come with knowledge and discernment? So that you may approve what is excellent. Love does not just simply approve of everything. Or another way you could say this, love is not without judgment. Now this, this, this flies in the face of our culture today, which says things like love wins and love is love and, and really just cheapens and diminishes the meaning of love in the first place. 
Love comes with knowledge, love comes with discernment and they have to grow together. And so he's saying, I want you, I'm praying that he says that they would continue to love the right things in the right way. We talked a week or two ago about disordered loves, right? Uh, That idea that we don't always love the wrong things, but we love the right things in the wrong order. God should be first and then other, other things fall before that. And so Paul is essentially saying, I want you to, I'm praying that God would help you to love the right things in the right order, the right way until Christ's return. And the fruit of that love or the demonstration of that love is what he calls here the fruit of righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but a righteousness that comes, he says in verse 11, through Jesus Christ. So so Bible is clear, right? That Romans three, there is no one good. There is none righteous. No one seeks after God. All of us, because of the fall of our first parents, all of us are born by our nature and by our choices as people who are opposed to God. We're we're born with what I'll call a sinful self-interest. And not having the righteousness of God, we try to establish our own righteousness. Every single one of us tries to prove ourselves to ourselves, to God, to this world, and establish our own righteousness to to make something of ourselves so that we say we're okay. And there's all kinds of false righteousness that we stand on. We stand on things like success righteousness. I've done something with my life. I am somebody. And so therefore, I'm justified. Economic righteousness, you know? Oh, I've seen a lot of that lately. <laughs> this student loan thing. Ooh, a lot of economic righteousness out there. Education righteousness. I got these degrees and you know, political righteousness. I'm with the right party, are you? Vocational righteousness, marriage righteousness, parenting righteousness, social justice righteousness, moral righteousness, religious righteousness. There are all kinds of false righteousnesses, (laughs) all kinds of ways we try to justify and prove ourselves. And and Paul would be clear here that the fruit of self-righteousness, any kind of self-righteousness, the fruit of that is rotten to the core. It's absolutely stenches, right? Stinks. We need a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that comes not from the outside in, but from the inside in out. And so that's why Paul would say to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. You get that? Jesus is the only perfectly righteous one. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, to take on the embodiment of sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What reformers called the great exchange, all my sin, all my failure, all my folly, all my stupidity, all my rejection of God put onto Jesus, his perfect righteousness credited to me. First Peter three says, said that, says it this way, um, at the cross, it was the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus for us. that in the life, the perfect sinless life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, us unrighteous people can be made righteous. 
we can be covered with a righteousness that can never be stained because it's the righteousness of Jesus himself. So that when God looks at us through the lens of what Jesus has done, he doesn't see our failure and sin, he sees righteousness and he smiles. That's a miracle of miracles. And it's available to every single one of us right now, right here. This is one of the reasons why we celebrate and remember communion every single week. All right, this is a, this is a symbol of grace, a means of grace for us. We are not coming to these tables. These tables are not showing us how awesome we are. These are not symbols of our righteousness. This, this bread represents the, the body of Christ. It wasn't our body that was broken, though it should have been. It's the body of Jesus. Those cups represent the juice, the wine, the blood of Christ. It, it, it wasn't our blood that was spilled, though it should have been. It was his. And so Peter Again, in, in 1 Peter chapter two, we'll put it this way. Speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's not saying here, Jesus died so that all your sin would be put away. So you start back at zero and then good luck, buddy. It's up to you to make yourself righteous again. That's not what he means. Die to sin and live to a righteousness that's already been captured for you. It's already been attained because it's the righteousness of Jesus freely given to you. And so therefore he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Past tense. You've been healed. For all those who would receive with the empty hands of faith, the finished work of Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our wounds are healed to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. And so Paul's, prayer at the end of this section of Philippians essentially is that we would continue in joyful obedience to Christ. That's what he's saying. Your love would abound with knowledge and discernment so that you can approve what's excellent and be pure and blameless for the day, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He's praying that we would continue to walk in obedience to Christ. And this is what Jesus says to us in John 14. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Okay? So you can't love him until you know him and not just know about him, but actually know him intimately. But you can't say that you love him if you do not obey him. We... When, when we know him, to know Christ is to love him. You can't know Christ and not love him. It's impossible. So as we know Jesus intimately, we love him. And when we love him, we will want to walk in obedience to him because we understand that all of the commandments and all of the instructions of the Lord are ultimately for our good because he loves us. And here's the fascinating thing. When we learn to live in God's world, God's way, you know what happens? It actually works. <laughs> almost like he designed it that way. <laughs> it's almost like he knew <laughs> that if you live in his world, the way he instructs you to, it actually works. That doesn't mean it's without pain. Doesn't mean it's without suffering. Doesn't mean it's without hardship, but it means 
it works. We live in God's way, God's world, God's way, it works. And God is glorified in us and we are satisfied in him. And what happens is we find that we start to abound in joy, a joy only he can provide and a joy, by the way, that helps us to weather and navigate any storm that comes our way. That you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So as we wrap up today, here's what I wanna do. I've got four questions that are gonna come up on the screen. Uh, once they're all up, you can take a picture or you can write them down as they come. But I would, I would love for you to take these questions to lunch with you or take them to your quiet time in the morning and just reflect on them. Um, this is kind of how we generally wrap up most sermons. Um, so first question is this, how might looking back with gratitude for God's work in my life, give me joy to weather whatever is ahead? For some of you, what's ahead is pretty dark. Some of you know that already. Some of you have no idea that darkness is around the corner, but that's reality, right? All of us are, somebody said once, all of us are either going into a storm, in a storm or coming out of a storm. Like this is how life is, right? So how might looking back, reflecting on how God has been at work in my life and in that, my community, how God has used other people to, you know, to encourage me or, 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 or uh, help me along the way. How is that giving me joy? How does that produce a joy in me that helps me to weather whatever's ahead? Looking back at his faithfulness helps me look forward with confidence that if he's brought me through that, he'll be with me in this. So how might looking back with gratitude for God's work in my life, give me joy to weather whatever's ahead. Second, what keeps me from being present and invested in the lives of others in this family of faith. Now listen, I know a lot of you are new, so this isn't for you specifically, um, but we're all busy. We all also have the same amount of hours in a week. Um, and there are some of us who are able to commit themselves to one another, to community, to prayer for one another, to serving one another. And they do so because they make it a priority. Right? So what is it that keeps you from being able to be present and invested in the lives of other people in this family of faith? Third, how does seeing Jesus' sacrificial love for me grow my love for Christ and for others? When I look at the gospel, when I see Jesus' perfect life in place of my imperfect life, when I see his death on the cross for all of my foolishness and sin, when I see him resurrected, conquering death, sin, and hell for me so that I could be forgiven, welcomed into his forever family. How does seeing that, that, that God would love me so much that Christ would come for me? That's gotta change me, right? How does that motivate me, give me a love for him and for other people that spills out into their lives? And then fourth and finally, can I trust that walking in faithful obedience to the ways of Jesus will ultimately lead to abounding joy in my life? Can I trust him? Can I take him at his word? If he says, this is not good for you, can I believe him and trust him that it's not good for me? If, if he says, this is good for you, uh, can I trust and believe that walking in obedience to him is the best way to live? Not by rules, by love, by love. All right, I'm gonna leave these up on the screen for you. Um, here's how we're gonna respond to the Lord. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna have a moment of silence. 
for just for you to reflect and prepare your hearts for communion. Uh, and then we're gonna open up the tables. When, when I come with my family to the table, that'll kind of be the signal that the tables are open. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're gonna be welcome to these tables. There's two stations at each table to participate in communion. And once again, what we're doing is we're remembering that it should have been me, should have been my body broken. It should have been my bloodshed for my sin, but it wasn't, it was his. He loved me so much that he gave himself for me. And not only that, there's a day coming. Psalm 16 says, in the presence of God is joy forevermore. There's a day coming when those who have trusted in Christ will be with him forever in heaven and our joy will be complete and it'll be eternal. And so this is a foretaste that we have the opportunities we come to communion to reflect on the fact that he promises us life and joy forevermore. And so we come in thanksgiving, we come in repentance, we come holding on to that promise. And so the tables will be open. You can take the bread, dip into the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience allows. Uh, as you, it's gonna take us a little while with this many people in the room. So just be cognizant of that. Um, if you can sort of keep to the left of each aisle, that'll allow people who've already gone through to make their way back to their seats. Um, as you make your way back though, there is a black box in the back, two black boxes. If you're new and wanna fill out a connect card for us, let us know that you are here, that'd be great. If you have a prayer request, the backside of that card can, is for prayers. You can put them in there. And then if you're a regular and you wanna worship the Lord through uh, generous sacrificial giving of your finances, that can go in those boxes as well if you don't already give online. Um, so let me pray. And the, the band will come back up um, after we start taking communion, but I'll pray for us now and then we'll respond to the Lord. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these beautiful people and just their attention, uh, their desire to hear from you and uh, uh, to study your word together. And I pray that Lord, you have met them there, that you have spoken to them by something that has been said today um, and that they would cling to that, that, that we would be a people who pursue our joy in the Lord as we look back on our lives and what you've done, as we are present with others, as we look forward to the future and, and, and seek by the power of your spirit to walk in obedience to you, that you would make us abound with joy. That when we walk out of these doors, we would be a people who are markedly different from the rest of the world because we have the joy of Christ in us. Make it so, Lord, for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Let's be silent for a minute. When I get up, the tables will be open.